0: Welcome to Wired Foresight. I'm Greg Williams, the Deputy Global Editorial Director of Wired. So across our newsroom, the Wired team spends its days asking what it would take to build a better future and to inspire the people who want to build that future by telling stories about the world's biggest challenges and the individuals who are trying to solve them. So we're excited to talk to some of the speakers at an event we hosted last November in London. All of them are focused on the same goal, addressing humankind's most pressing challenge, Climate change. And while it's easy to become overwhelmed by the sheer scale of what needs to be addressed global heating, renewable energy, biodiversity, decarbonizing the global economy, agriculture, food there are so many stories of hope, innovation, and action that we're going to be sharing uh, in the coming episodes. Today, I talk to Greg Jackson, the founder of renewable energy company Octopus founded in 2015. The company's today valued around £4 billion. It has more than 3 million customers in 14 countries.
1: One of the reasons I set this company up was, you know, I grew up in a a low-income household with a single mum and we were cut off for not being able to pay our bills. And you realise that solving the affordability problem is the same as solving the climate problem
0: Greg's a serial entrepreneur and he has spent most of his career in the impact space, which is something we touch on during our conversation in terms of the current cost of living crisis. During the conversation, we touch on a wide range of topics, including how we get to net zero, the challenges of getting renewable energy onto complex grids, EV infrastructure, national security, how he thinks about partnering with large fossil fuel incumbents, and why we're at the beginning of an explosion in green technology that's really similar to the very early days of the internet. Enjoy the conversation. So Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for um, having me. So let's start with the the macro picture. Renewables are currently responsible for, I think, around 40% of UK electricity. The aim is to get this to 100% by 2035. How are we going to get there?
1: Well, first of all, we've got massive projects underway and permissions in, for example, the North Sea to build offshore wind farms. But the reality is everything at the moment is delayed or at risk because of grid connections. That's an issue here in the UK. It's actually an issue globally, which is that you know grids were designed for a system that hadn't changed very much in the last 50 years. And all of a sudden, with the move from coal-fired power stations and other forms of fossil fuel generation to distributed renewables. The entire shape of our grid needs to change. The ability and agility to connect to uh, new locations of generation, new forms of generation, kind of around the world, this is is probably now the emerging biggest challenge. What are the challenges? Take the UK as an example. First of all, our grid was designed to ship electricity from where it was generated, and that was typically near the big coal fields, to the cities and towns where most of the consumption was, plus some industrial plants. Going forward, we need to be shipping electricity from the coast, where we've got lots of offshore wind, in the case of the UK, inland. And on top of that, we need to be able to handle millions of different generating points, whether that be rooftop solar panels on houses, uh, solar farms in fields outside towns and villages and then uh, you know wind farms which of course if we had them closer to point of generation reduces the transmission cost but it all needs new connections it also needs new economics at the moment again using the uk as an example but these issues occur everywhere we have a single price for electricity on the grid across the entire nation from lands end to john Greats, at any moment in time and yet there are times when for example it's windy and we subsidize the wind farms in Scotland to not generate, whilst at the same time you can be paying a fortune for electricity
0: in other parts of the nation. Just dig into that for, for, for the listeners for a second. Why do we pay wind farms to not generate? Yeah, because currently we're generating
1: electricity in areas where there isn't necessarily the demand. Right. And so there are two ways we can solve this that would be sensible. One of them would be build more grid capacity to ship those electrons to where they're needed. And the other would be to have, for example, dynamic pricing or uh, local pricing to incentivize people to use it where it's being generated. A bit like, you know, like in the old days, a lot of industry was built near coal fields because you had the source of energy. And so you built the industry nearby. Now in the world of clean electricity, we could see the same, you know, you could have data centers near wind farms so that they can make the most of this very cheap, very clean electricity a lot of the
0: time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So there's a logistical operational challenge around geography. Presumably also there's, is there a regulatory challenge? Do we need to think about how we govern this better? We absolutely do need to think about
1: how we govern this better. Uh, Look, there's no criticism of the existing organizations and companies. It's just that the system was set up to do something very different. One good way of looking at it is in the UK, we need to build roughly 20 times more electricity transmission cables per year over the next decade than we have done over the last three decades. So what, what we're seeing is you know, this massive increase in the need to change the system. But all of the companies and the organizations were designed to plan behind a, a much slower moving system and also to be rewarded accordingly. So for example, companies earn money for keeping the lights on rather than necessarily using smart tech to get the most out of the system. And so fundamentally what we need around the world, certainly around the the rich world, is a completely new way of thinking about how we manage electricity. Is this
0: also to do with incentives for the large organizations that are overseeing this process, that we need to kind of re we need to kind of recalibrate what it is that they are rewarded for?
1: Yeah, there are probably three ways to think about it. You can think about incentives, you can think about control, and you can think about markets. So one thing would be, look, you've got monopolies responsible for grids in most places. Uh, but there's a couple of countries that have got contestable grids. So if you want to build a, a new generating plant, you know, say wind farm in the UK you have to apply for permission to connect to the grid. And at the moment, there's typically a 10-year wait. Now, by the way, not many investors are going to hang around 10 years. So that fundamentally reduces our ability to deploy clean generation. But there are countries where if you can't get a quick connection or a connection at a price that suits you, you have the ability to build your own or contract it. It's a bit like if you're building a factory, you can build your own road network onto the motorway. We need to think about electricity in the same way. That's one option. Another is, how do you control these decisions? At the moment, they're subject to bureaucratic service-level agreements that were set up long, long before we had this challenge. And so we need to change the way in which we control and govern the decisions. And then the third option is incentives, which is, to what extent are the grids and networks in the wealthier world incentivized, to, for example, carry more electricity in the current system as opposed to building a new system? To what extent are they incentivized to build a new system quickly as opposed to according to the old rule book?
0: Just so I'm clear, we can build wind farms roughly, what, a year, two, three, but we can't get the electricity that they're generating to the grid for a decade? Exactly. I mean, in principle, a yeah, single wind
1: turbine can be built in a matter of weeks or months. Now, of course, there might be a period of planning approvals and and that itself is slow and painful and can be hugely accelerated. But the single biggest barrier is the grid connections. And so at the moment, if you've got your planning approvals and you you can sort out your supply chain, you can build a wind farm in a lot less than a year, but you might be waiting
0: 10 years to get a connection. That kind of brings me on to a question I'm keen to get your perspective on so obviously one of the biggest challenges we're facing in getting to net zero is supplying enough energy to support the transition to evs which we have to do by 2030 you know and you've you've talked about ensuring supply but but also the infrastructure question that needs to be addressed
1: at the very top level evs help illustrate the difference between the old way of thinking about the world and the new way In the old way, you know, you read all these articles that say, Can our grid cope with electric vehicles? You know, each electric vehicle, when it's plugged in, is the equivalent of seven households' worth of power. So you can imagine putting, you know, millions, tens of millions of EVs on the road over the next decade or so could look like a really big challenge. Uh, But the reality is, uh, they don't need to draw that power all the time. If you control them smartly, you could look at a single street and have each car drawing its power at different times in order to flatten the load on the local grid so that you need less new infrastructure potentially no new infrastructure but also each of those cars has got a battery that might hold enough power to power a house for the best part of a week so when people say like what do you do when it's not windy and it's not sunny well part of the answer is we've got this massive distributed store of electricity in a way you can think of it that you know every household had a Electric car on the driveway, then you could power those houses with no wind and no sun for you know a good few days. Uh, so, one way of thinking of this, that the new way of thinking is electric vehicles make the transition to renewables much, much easier. But we need this uh, intelligent, smart control, and we need a system that enables each car to be charging at uh, times that. Bear in mind, you know, what's going on on the rest of the grid, what's going on the local network, what's going on literally on the street, what's going on in generation. Now, all the tech to do that exists today. In fact, you know, Octopus has got 20-odd thousand customers where electric cars each have a unique charging schedule designed to meet the needs of the driver. In fact, frankly, obviously, they come first. There's no point having a car if you can't teach the journeys you planned for it. So once you've worked out what you need to do to meet the needs of the driver... You're then optimising these cars so every day they've got a different charging schedule. It's all available in the app. The customer can always override it. But it makes electric vehicles the perfect complement for renewable generation. Once you're doing those electric vehicles, you're able to slot so much else of the renewable economy around it. A home with domestic solar panels, maybe with a battery so that you can grab the electricity from the solar, shift the time you use it and an electric car and an electric heat pump and a smart hot water heater. All of those things could be optimised together. Greg, just let me give you one example of, of how powerful this is. Octopus have now got agreements in place with a number of house builders that enables them to build houses that guarantee zero energy bill. Because they have all this tech and then we optimise it smartly, the house is essentially a sort of net zero effect on the grid. There are times it's putting electricity on the grid, times it's taking it off, and collectively, it guarantees the household and no energy bills. Now, using that kind of optimization uh, from the individual house upwards, you run the grid
0: entirely differently. So I just want to drill down on something you said about cars in driveways. You know, the majority of people live in cities in the UK, they don't have a driveway necessarily where they can set up a charging point. How do you think we can bring that infrastructure into play in you know, where most people live, which is in kind of fairly densely occupied cities? I think, first of all, about two-thirds of houses in the UK have
1: off-street parking of some sort. Mm-hmm. By the way, they're the ones that are most likely to own cars. And among those that own cars, they're most likely to be uh, using them more often, So I think the first thing is recognizing that the lowest hanging fruit is already a huge prize. Now, as we start to look at, you know, for example, electric vehicles for people who don't have off-street parking, a lot of this kind of technology can be deployed in public as well. You know, we already have um, a solution for people who need to charge their car out of home. A card and an app that let them use, you know, the majority of public charging points. And on many of those, you'll get different pricing or discounts if you're using electricity at times that are off-peak for that area or when renewables are abundant. And mm-hmm. so the same solutions apply across the board. And, and again, this is a total system change. So, for example, as we start electrifying fleets, you know, delivery drivers, engineers, yeah. so we can optimise all of that transport. And the more we're optimising all the different types of transport together... So we can make the most of the infrastructure. Uh, But by the way, one thing is interesting, which is that a couple of years ago, although people worried about public charging, the reality is that most of it was hugely underused because there weren't that many electric cars. But because electric vehicles are now growing exponentially, we definitely have a huge shortage of public charging. But that, in a way, ties back to some of the topics we started off with, which is we don't have an electricity system, a grid, and networks that are agile enough for the future we're building. In fact, the one we're plowing our way into rapidly. So it's hard to build public charging points, partly because it's very hard to get the electricity connections. One major oil company was talking to me about their desire to put electric charge points in filling stations. And it took them multiple years just to get the electricity connections that they needed for one service station. Now, this kind of tells us that fundamentally... We need an overhaul of the way we think about it. We've got to move away from central planning, from monopolies that can, think they can predict the future, to agility. The example for me is, I remember when the iPhone first launched, and um, initially you couldn't get a data connection, the mobile networks just didn't have enough capacity. But it only took a few months for them very rapidly to build enough to handle the early iPhone adopters, And thereafter, just to keep building at pace. And actually, we found that because the wireless networks really wanted this mobile data, they were able to build the infrastructure very quickly. But I bet if you'd asked their planning teams, their engineering teams, prior to the launch of the iPhone, how long it would take to create that data capacity, they'd have told you years and decades. Mm. And so what we need here is to free up the markets, to create the incentives, And to deal with the planning issues that mean that energy is sort of
0: 20 years or more behind telephony. But obviously the growth of the internet over the past 20 years was largely driven through fast consumer adoption of mobile technology, which you pointed out, uh, particularly around the iPhone initially in the, the building out of the app store. What do you think is going to be the equivalent moment in green technology? What's going to be the killer app, if you like? Yeah, the electric vehicle is the killer app. Yeah. Simply because, first
1: of all, it's a better car. I got my first electric car maybe six or more years ago. And I must admit, at first, I I thought my partner was going to make me give it back because it was an an impractical gadget. We didn't have off-street parking. But actually, within no time at all, you know, she was telling everyone electric cars are definitely the future. Because the experience of driving one and owning one, for the vast majority of people, is better than for a petrol car. Mm. Uh, The prices are coming down rapidly as they scale up around the world. So the price of new cars is coming down. Secondly, there'll be a second-hand market that helps reduce prices further. No normal human knows what a kilowatt hour costs until they get an electric car. And then they always know. Because they've taken that kind of habit of knowing what a liter of petrol is into the world of the new car. And once they discover they can get very cheap kilowatt hours by allowing this automatic optimization or using electricity at different times. They think, what else can I do? And that's when they start thinking about electric heat pump, uh, electric heating for their water, about solar panels, about home battery. All this stuff suddenly starts being very appealing. And at that point, by the way, you can start getting rid of their gas connections to get an electric cooker and electric hob. And I think that's the killer app. The, The challenge you've got in electricity that you didn't have in mobiles is in mobiles you have four i mean typically varied by country and over time but maybe four different networks each competing for who could have the capacity to be able to provide a better service or a good enough service to customers so as customers bought smartphones and used more and more data and they were streaming everything and uploading stuff to the cloud all the time they could be better served by those networks in electricity where we've got a monopoly Instead, what we've got is a whole pile of out-of-date rules and organisations who are optimised to work to those rules rather than one that is desperately trying to say, how do we ensure we provide customers with the best experiences they electrify their lives?
0: Foresight will be back with more from Greg Jackson in just a moment. And I'd love to just take you back to what you're talking about um, in terms of the zero energy bill houses. You said you've got an agreement with a developer. Clearly, we're seeing the prices of renewables tumble; they're coming down, you know, significantly, pretty much all the time. How long do you think it's going to be until, and, and you've you've mapped out this, you know, whether it's Hobbs or whether it's heat pumps, whatever it might be, this, this switch over, particularly within the kind of a domestic. Setting. How, how long do you think until really electricity is basically free and, and abundant?
1: I don't think it'll be free. I think what's going to be interesting is it will be under the hood. Customers may not always see this. It'll have incredibly volatile pricing. Even today, driven by the fact that, as you said, 40% of electricity is renewable. By the way, electricity is only about 20% of the energy we use in the UK. So 40% renewable sounds a lot. Yeah. We need to electrify most of the stuff that's not electric. So really, we're at forty percent of twenty percent. So we're about of eight percent of the energy we're using is renewable. Yeah. But already today, you know, we see times when energy prices go negative. Typically, when it's windy, uh, there are other times when prices are incredibly spiky. At the moment, driven by the fact that we have a lot of gas-powered generation and yeah the global price for gas is through the roof but you have this huge volatility the volatility is not going to go away although the average will keep coming down but so under the hood you're going to find there are times we've got incredibly cheap electricity maybe free and less and there are other times when it's going to be pricey but what companies will need to do companies like octopus is wrap those underlying prices in products that enable different types of customers with different habits and lifestyles to not be exposed to the the spikiness, but instead to get the version that's best for them. So, for example, you know, my grand doesn't have any of this kit. She can't. I mean, she's 98. She's unlikely to drive. And she lives in a very small flat and sheltered accommodation. You know, my grand just needs simple electricity pricing. And so, you know, energy companies like us will just find a way that she gets a really simple flat rate. And that flat rate should be cheaper than it's ever been. Somebody who's got a lot of electrical equipment and they can shift the load around will find that the more they optimize it, the cheaper it gets. But if they don't optimize it, it'll be more expensive. And then industrial users should find that you know, if they can locate near sources of very cheap electricity, they'll get increasingly low costs. If they can shift the times they're using it, then they'll go lower still. And I think this enables whole new industries. For example, we've discovered we've got a whole pile of customers that do indoor farming. And what they do is uh, it's a sealed environment. So 99% of the water that goes into the building leaves in the fruit and veg. There are no pesticides, but energy is a huge cost. And by using electricity at times that it's cheap, typically when there's a lot of wind and sun, to heat and light the plants, they can run their operations much more cheaply. And the plants are happy to sleep at times electricity is expensive. And so actually what you find is that by capitalizing on this, they're able to produce much cheaper fruit and veg right next to the towns and cities that are using it. So instead of flying this stuff around the world, you're producing it locally. This is an example to me of the complete change that's possible in a renewable world. And I think it's, it's analogous against the phone, isn't it? Where you know, no one had thought the fact that putting a camera on a phone enabled you to you know, get through the pandemic with QR codes or that yeah uh, you know, the geolocation stuff meant that Uber would increasingly provide a different form of transport. It's just the same. And that's why we often talk about this opening of the
0: possibility of the next industrial revolution, but this one being driven by clean energy. You, you mentioned earlier on, Greg, the idea of 40, I think you said 40% of electricity is now renewable. I'm interested to sort of get your sense of what's the mix of renewables is going to look like by, say, 2030? Obviously, we have, you know, wind, but we, we've not really talked about solar or biomass, both which are, I know are pretty significant uh, contributors. I'm I really resistant to these
1: questions of talking about the mix because it speaks to that central planning mindset that says we're going to decide that 8% is excellent Right. Now, I've no idea what technologies are going on under the hood in the wireless networks. Mm-hmm. It just works Similarly, I've no idea when Heinz is selling me baked beans how much he's sourced from farms in one location or another or how much of the tomato sauce was made six months in advance or in real... I just don't know. It doesn't matter. So I think the first thing is what we need is the markets will drive these decisions. It might be that the most economically efficient mix is loads and loads of solar with home batteries, but we don't currently have the market mechanisms to make that economically viable even though the underlying economics or the physics are perfect. It's just the way the grid works makes it not viable. At the moment, we're heading to a world where the mix will be dominated by very, very large infrastructure projects, particularly in the UK, it'll be offshore wind, because the central planning mindset can get its head around that. But we need to have a distributed mindset that means that solutions will be much more a mix. And then there are complete surprises for people you know octopus has backed this project to build a huge solar farm in morocco with some wind as well and then a four thousand kilometer cable to bring most electricity to the uk that one project could provide seven percent of our current electricity needs and it could be built before 2030 as long as it gets the right permissions from government and grid and the right mechanisms to enter the market the economics work brilliantly the question really is, you know, does our system enable that kind of innovation? But that could literally be part of your your mix before the end of the decade, if we have the right system.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting parallel again, because I guess it goes back to what you were saying about the growth of the internet based on the mobile internet, based on these platforms that enabled us to scale and obviously network effects being created. And we are in the process of kind of developing something similar, right? This ecosystem of energy solutions. Let's talk a little bit, if you like, about Octopus itself and you know you running. You know what is a, what is becoming you know a very very large multinational company. You have operations in obviously the UK, but also France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Australia, Japan, New Zealand, and the US. I'm interested to get your sense as an as an executive, really, what what the challenges are of operating in very different markets with very different. Consumers human needs and regulatory environments? I think that the
1: underlying consumer need is the same everywhere. People need access to energy to live the lives they want to live. And the cheaper we can make that, the better. During the energy transition, the challenge is the same in many places, which is we're moving from fossil fuel generation, which you could turn a power station on and off, to a world of renewables that's going to be in different locations. And the is often intermittent or variable, sometimes predictably like tidal, or solar in sunny countries, and sometimes less predictable like wind. So everywhere around the world, the underlying challenge is the same. Now the markets and mechanisms by which consumers and businesses get access to this power and the grids that distribute it, there are some difference in the rules, but the physics and the fundamental economics is very similar. And I think for us as a company, We set about to build a global platform recognising this similarity to say, look, around the world, the transition to renewables can make energy cheaper as well as cleaner as long as we do it right. And so we built a technology platform, Kraken, which powers the businesses that we run in seven countries, that works with the generation we've got in several more countries, and which we increasingly license to other companies around the world. It's a bit like with Uber, There is no market that is more locally regulated than personal transport. The rules for cabs and taxis vary from town to town, city to city around the world. But because Uber understood that the fundamentals were people need to get from A to B as cheaply as possible and other people would love the employment of being able to drive those people around, Uber could create a global platform that delivers that job in pretty much any geographical or regulatory context that's the way we see the transition to renewables, and it's why for octopus the, the speed at which we move across the globe you know we, we've got to move fast
0: because you know the challenge of climate change ain't waiting for anyone just to dig into that um that analogy you drew with Uber do you fundamentally think about octopus as a tech company? Is that the way you would define it? say so my view like a wired audience
1: is going to be <laughs> the best informed on this, but many of the best tech companies are the best consumer companies is Amazon a tech company or does it just truly understand uh, retail and what humans want? Similarly with Uber, you know, it uses tech, but it probably understands the needs of passengers and indeed of drivers better than anyone else. So in our case, the two are yin and yang. The tech enables you to deliver the service that you kind of imagine that people want in a way that no one could before. But delivering the service enables you to learn how people use it and that informs the tech developments. The, the two enable this
0: really fast test, learn, build cycle. So, we're seeing now with what's happened sort of geopolitically over the last year, energy is now just not an economic concern, it's one of national security. I'm interested, given that you're operating in so many different uh, locales, do you think there's a drive towards every sovereign state wanting to become? energy independent? Is there an increased urgency? Obviously, that was always a goal for most countries. The United States is obviously energy independent. Many others are. Europe isn't. Do you see a new drive towards that kind of energy independence? And do renewables allow many countries to get there in ways that obviously they couldn't if they were reliant on fossil fuels?
1: Yeah, look, 1973 saw oil embargoes, which reduced the global supply of oil dramatically. And the u s decided by the way, one of the impacts was a, a dramatic improvement in the efficiency of cars around the world over the next decade or so. but another was the u s. decided it wanted to be more energy independent, and obviously back then that meant oil and and, to, and gas and certainly you've now seen in this crisis the u s having a great degree of insulation from the colossal and by the way utterly brutal energy price spikes caused by Putin's invasion of Ukraine. I think it's entirely appropriate governments around the world are thinking about energy security. And of course, there's nothing more secure than homegrown renewables. No one can chop off the supply line. Now, we talked earlier about the challenges, the grid changes, the opportunity to use technology to enable the characteristics of renewables, the fact that sometimes it's truly abundant to provide cheaper energy. So I think energy security and energy affordability go hand in hand and renewables delivers on both. And that's even before we think about climate change, which itself is a security issue, because the more that climate change ravages the world, not only do you end up with forest fires, floods and famines, but, you know, you'll end up with huge conflicts over water, over access to resources and, and even over population movement. So in the short term and the long term, we're sitting on the absolute key to national
0: security. So, Craig, I can't let you go without talking about heat pumps, because obviously most of the UK relies on gas boilers to heat their homes. They're quite a big investment for most people. Clearly, we do need to move to heat pumps. You talked a little bit about the way in which they could be part of this kind of ecosystem of, of appliances that would help sort of get most households to a zero energy bill. Tell us a little bit about how you think we can speed up that transition from the classic gas boiler that most people have in their homes to to a heat pump?
1: The first thing is that heat pumps are currently seen as being expensive in two or three ways. The first one is that they can cost a lot to get them installed. The second is that they can cost a lot to manufacture or to buy the hardware. And the third is they can cost a lot to uh, run. The fossil fuel crisis has shown us that being dependent on the hugely volatile global gas market means that actually gas boilers are more expensive to run than heat pumps. And if we had a sensible energy system, one in which the cost of electricity more closely matched the cost of production, which is coming down with renewables, heat pumps would be dramatically cheaper than gas boilers to run. The second thing in terms of the cost to manufacture, Michael Dell, uh, in his dorm room, read an article that said that the typical IBM PC cost three thousand dollars to buy but only contained a thousand dollars of components and that's how he set up the direct model for dell and drove down the global cost of pcs yeah but we're seeing the same thing in heat pumps which is because heat pumps is certainly the case a very small market with heat pumps going through a lot of hands and often heat pumps being kind of an afterthought on the manufacturing line for air conditioners the hardware cost is dramatically more than it could be, which is why Octopus have bought a heat pump manufacturing factory. We're designing hardware that will be lower cost to manufacture. And we expect that to be kind of rolling off the production lines initially in the next sort of six to 12 months. And then the third thing is the cost to install. And look, heat pump installers are often great engineers, but they're doing very bespoke jobs because they're typically going into expensive houses, each of which is different, often with planning issues. Hard to heat, even with a gas boiler, you know, because there'll be uh, leaky Victorian, Edwardian, George, and all that stuff. And so uh, really what we're trying to do is not only manufacture a heat pumps that's man- cheap to manufacture, but also industrialise the installation processes. Right In the UK, 40% of homes are kind of equivalent of three bed semis. And we want to be putting heat pumps in those where the installation process can
0: be cheap, the heat pump can be cheap. And over time, we'll get it to roughly cost comparable with the gas boiler. So final question, Greg, want to talk to you a little bit about how you think about working with some of the larger fossil fuel based companies, the large energy companies, many of which have been criticized over the last year, these enormous profits they're making, not really investing the amount of money they claim they're going to, they're going to invest into renewables, you know, thinking about share buybacks, thinking about delivering dividends to their, to their shareholders. I know that you have an investor that joins your, your, your investors in May 2020, um, or a 20% stake in Octopus, it runs Australia's largest coal-fired power station. So I'm just interested how you think about working with incumbents who have this infrastructure, who have this knowledge, but they also still have enormous interests in fossil fuels. How does Octopus work with those kinds of organisations?
1: When companies are investing in us, the most important thing for me is not necessarily where the money's come from. After all, you, know, you can take the money from an investment fund or from a bank... And just one or two degrees removed, it could have come from anywhere. What matters is what we're able to do with it. And um, all our investors have absolutely unequivocally backed us to drive not only cheaper, cleaner energy directly, but to help build the system to lead the way on innovating the system that will make renewables the natural and cheapest replacement for our current system. So I'm really excited about the fact that we're able to take money that's been earned in that world. And use it to create a better world. And I've got to say also that I speak a lot and every time we're talking to potential investors and partners, I speak to the the people who run the companies to understand how they see the world. The reality for me is, uh, first of all, our world requires fossil fuels today. If we turned off the fossil fuel taps, it would be a disaster. So fundamentally, I can't... In fact, Octopus sells gas to millions of households. But the difference between us and some other companies is that we try to create a world in which gas isn't necessary. So I think when I speak to leads, these companies, are they serious about enabling us to pursue this path? And if they are, that's fantastic. The only thing that you know, kind of really gets in the way for me is when I speak to companies and it becomes apparent that you know, they're doing all they can to delay the transition, to use greenwashing, to use their huge lobbying and, and information capabilities to create fear, and uncertainty, and doubt about the transition to renewables. And none of our investors do that. And by the way, there's an awful lot of other big companies in the fossil fuel space that don't do it, and there are some that do. And I think that's where I, I kind of draw the line. I've also got to say, you know, we haven't talked much about the, the current energy crisis. And one of the reasons I set this company up was, you know, I grew up in a, a low-income household and, um, with a single mum, and we we were cut off for not being able to pay our bills And I could see that inefficiency of existing energy companies and existing energy systems meant people were paying too much and that we could solve that problem. I also joined Greenpeace when I was 15, and you realise that solving the affordability problem is the same as solving the climate problem, which is the move to renewables and the use of smart technology to make the most of that renewable energy when it's abundant. Today, we can fill the gaps with gas. And over time, we'll be able to fill the gaps with the smart use of electric cars or global interconnectors or grid-level battery storage and batteries in homes. And, And by shifting demand around, often automatically, appliances just using electricity when it's abundant without people really noticing. We're kind of in grasping distance of an energy system that could mean that this is the last energy crisis, the last fossil fuel crisis. And that's not just about tackling climate change, it really is about the fact that today our team is speaking to tens of thousands of people every day who are worried about and often, you know, may not be able to afford to pay their energy bills. And I think anything that enriching individuals by holding back the solutions to these problems is unconscionable. And I guess finally, you know, we've got to talk about the global south, the sort of developing countries. I think there's 800 million people in the world that don't have access to energy at all. There's maybe one and a half billion that don't have access to reliable energy. And in the same way as the move to mobiles bypassed landlines and brought communications to huge swathes of the world, dramatically improving lives. So we can do the same with clean energy. And you can't do it with fossil fuels. So today's energy crisis, putting millions of households into penury, the Climate crisis and global justice kind of all point in the direction that we need to go. And, and by the way, to go right back to your original question, you know, if people back us to, to fight this,
0: you know, I'll, I'll take it. Greg, thank you so much for joining us uh, today on Foresight. It's been absolutely delightful talking to you. Thank you, Greg. Please join us for a conversation around waste and plastics uh, next time on Foresight. So, the world produces about 400 million tons of plastic waste a year but plastics being recycled at an even lower rate previously estimated we're going to be having a conversation with insia Jafferjee. she's one of the founders of a company called shellworks which is a uk biotech startup that aims to replace plastic with materials based in nature If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us to build the Wired community. Thank you so much. Wired Foresight is a Condé Nast entertainment production. Jessica Taylor is our managing producer. Emily Elias is our producer. Annalise Begent is our production assistant. Jake Loomis is our mix engineer. Special thanks to Hannah Brewer, Jordan Bell, Peyton Hayes, and Nico Steele. I'm your host, Greg Williams. We'll be back next week with more conversations. We'll be chatting with Insia Jafferjee, the entrepreneur behind the renewable packaging company Shellworks. Thank you so much for joining us.